teaching for tomorrow in the climate of today. Inspiring educators globally. Never stop learning. Never stop growing. The best teachers teach from the heart. Welcome to Powerful Pedagogy. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Welcome to episode one of the Powerful Pedagogy podcast. With us today, we have the amazing, just experienced author of Choice Time, How to Deepen Learning Through Inquiry and Play, Renee Dinnerstein. Is it Dinnerstein or Dinnerstein? Am I pronouncing right, it? Dinnerstein. It depends on which part of the family is speaking, but we say Dinnerstein in my mind. <laughs> okay, great. All right, awesome. Both, both are okay. Yeah. And you have over 50 years experience working as an early childhood educator. You've taught, you know, in, in Rome, you've taught in New York. And so right now you are a consultant to several schools in terms of, you know, their curriculum development or just sort of how they can deepen play. And so what I'm hoping to impart to people from you, from your wisdom, is just sort of, I'm sure you know, just through this pandemic, play has changed a lot in the classroom. We've gone through, you know, having centers where multiple children can join in and collaborate together to having desks where children have to sit there, you know, alone and just sort of play with their own toys and, you know, just lack of sharing because we have to wash everything, you know, before we exchange it. And so I'm just wondering just sort of what you've seen or, or just maybe you can speak to just sort of how important choice time is just in, in general or what inspired you to even write this book about the importance of choice time. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And this is a delight. I actually want to start speaking by reading something aloud that I read in the New York Times yesterday that just popped out at me, not in the best of ways. but And I want to preface this by saying that it's a teacher that's being quoted for part of this. And it's not the teacher that I'm so annoyed with. It's more the, the mentality that is driving this type of thinking. All right. This was an article about how teachers are dealing with coming back after the pandemic and it mainly it mainly focused on upper grades, but then there was a kindergarten teacher. And it said, and I won't say the name, Miss B remains optimistic about her students' progress and was grateful recently to be among a group of teachers who received recognition from the district for their work during the pandemic. She knows her students aren't all where they should be academically. Though she has found herself reteaching lessons from the fall, like how to write words on the correct lines of their handwriting practice paper. Quote, I'm still committed to coming in every day, trying to push and pull the greatness in and out of them, she said. I just still worry how many of them are going to be prepared for first grade. And that's just what I fear. All right. This is exactly what I fear. All right. This idea that these children who have been separated from each other, who have 
maybe had family members sick or even dying and who haven't had opportunities to socialize, to, to, to get into discussions, to get into fights, to get into, to, to interact with other children their age are being looked at as, as having a deficit that needs to be made up and, 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 and they have to be prepared, prepared, prepared for the next grade. This kindergarten, these are five-year-olds that we're talking about. And so the question I'd ask is, why is it important or is it even appropriate for them to be writing their names on lines? What is appropriate for these children at this point? What is really appropriate for children at this point? I wrote my book about choice time because, well, I mean, First of all, I hadn't any intention of writing a book. I was a classroom teacher for many, many years. And when I was out of the classroom, I became acquainted with a new kindergarten teacher in the school where I had taught who wanted to do choice time because the school that she was in before didn't allow it. And so the principal of my school, Liz Phillips, she she uh, encouraged this teacher to reach out to me and we sat and we spent a lot of time talking about what is choice time, what you know, what should children be doing then, what's the teacher's role, et cetera, et cetera. And then she invited me into her classroom. And eventually she left the classroom and became an editor at Heinemann. And she's the one who really pushed me, pushed me, pushed me to write the book, you know. And it was an interesting experience because it took an, it took a year to write and I had to really rethink what I did in my classroom, what is it that I did and what am I seeing in these classrooms that I'm, that I'm, I'm going to, but I would say that like I had my class in a public school for two years. I had them for kindergarten and then I had them again for first grade, the same children we looped up. All right. And the last few years that I was teaching, that's when things like guided reading level books were introduced into the into early childhood, you know, into I don't think pre-K, but into kindergarten. And I completely refused to do it. I spoke to my principal. I said, I'm not doing it. I'm just not doing it. I said, this is probably the last time that they're not going to be put into these ridiculous groups like this. And and there are more important things for them to be doing. At, you know, and I did an hour of choice time every day. I took them outside to play every day. And you were able to do an hour of choice time in a public school. I insist. <laughs> I Good. mean, I you just, I mean, it, right? it was, I mean, my school that I taught in, they are very much connected with the uh, reading and writing Institute at teachers college. All right. And they have been for many years. And I've actually done work in their summer programs and in diff- you know, different presentations there, but more of, not about reading and writing, but more about play and choice time. But because it was a school that, that was so connected to, cho- to Teachers College, we did do a reading workshop, sort of, in my class. And we always did a writing workshop, but this is before these units of study came into play and, and these benchmarks, et cetera, you know, it it was much more of an inquiry based writing, you know, and much more of a social kind of reading together, looking at books together and things like that. I don't know if I'd get away with that anymore, but I guess because I was there so many years, I did get away with it. And also they listened to you. And I ran my, my choice time 
very much like a workshop in that we always had, and I still tell teachers to do that. I think it's a good idea to do that. We still, we, we met together and talked about something, maybe about a new center, maybe about something that I noticed the day before, maybe a new material that I was putting out, just like five minutes or so. Right. We do that in my classroom now. Yeah. With like sort of a guided discovery of just sort of any new materials or just sort of any new centers that we're introducing. Something together. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and then they went off to the centers that they chose to go to. And that was their sort of independent reading, independent writing. It was their independent play. <laughs> you know, they went off to the centers. And then we gathered together again at the end for a share meeting. We always had a share meeting at the end. And it wasn't something where everybody shared something, but where maybe one center was focused on or something that one particular child noticed, or it was a short focused meeting at the end. And one thing that I've recently seen videos of a really interesting program in China, and I hope I don't mispronounce it, but Anji in Anji play. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. It's, It's, oh, you must, it's, it's, it's all about play. They call it true play. And the children are outside for a good part of the day with, uh, with unstructured materials playing. And teacher, what teachers are doing is they are recording what children are doing. As they're documenting the whole play process. Lots of documentation, but something very interesting that they do that I've been sharing with teachers is that when they come in after they have their lunch or their snack or whatever, they have a share meeting, but their share meeting is the teacher projects something that was doc, that was videoed. And the children who were playing there come up to talk about what they were doing. And then the children who are sitting and watching ask questions or show things, say things they're noticing. And that's what it's about, you know, like so much about the play is also, I mean, there's so much. I was thinking this morning about one particular word, the word cognition. All right. When I read this, this little blurb from the Times, I was thinking cognition, and, and I wrote down, I went to the dictionary on Google, and I thought, well, let, let me see what they say about cognition. And cognition is the mental action or process of acquiring and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. Mm, that's not what yes. children are going to get when they sit and write their name on a dotted line, but that's what they're going to get. They're going to be get greater sense of cognition when they're playing, you know, when Absolutely. they're, when they're you, interacting you with each so other. You said so many things. You said so many things, Renee, that like, I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, and I think two of the things that stood out is one, when you were teaching, you sort of had to advocate for your students and sort of fight for that choice time. And I think if we can encourage teachers now to do the same things, you know, just, just sort of, you know, if you see the need for that socialization is lacking, especially in this pandemic, you know, fight for it, fight for those choice times, fight for those, you know, moments that the children can socialize. We understand now as early childhood educators that exposing children to each other is so beneficial from a very early age, right? Helping them, it helps them gain self-confidence, it helps them navigate the world. It also helps them overcome any sort of feelings of shyness. Children thrive on interactions that help them grow. So 
I'm wondering, you know, sort of what happens when a pandemic puts socialization on the back burner, right? right. So right. I think in short, part of what I'm seeing in my classroom is they adapt, but I also think that the long-term impact is still unknown. And you said something else that struck a chord because I was going to ask you just sort of how choice time could possibly be tailored to meet the needs that children have during this pandemic. And you said something about sharing what they're doing on screen with each other and allowing those children that created whatever in that area to be able to talk about it. And I think that if you, for classrooms, if you still have to separate children or keep them three feet apart or keep them, you know, I think now the CDC is sort of, there's new guidelines every single week. But for my classroom in particular, my children are young, they're under five, so they're all unvaccinated. So we still have a three feet rule, but doing something like sharing what two children, I allow two children in, in a center, whereas before I used to allow four and five, but allowing sort of what those two children might be doing in that center posting it up, you know, showing it on, you know, the the bigger screen and allowing them to share their experiences that possibly could, you know, just sort of be facilitate dialogue between mm-hmm. them in the right. classroom and just help them make them help make them feel connected to what their their counterparts, their peers are doing in the room. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I think we really have to think about what it is that we want for the children when they come back. And I think what you said, the, you know, the need, it's so difficult now. It is difficult. It's difficult for the children. It's difficult for the teachers also, you know. But I think that it, it is just so important to, to set priorities, all right? And, and I think at this point, the priority is not in catching up on your ABCs or your whatever, it's on catching up on all of this social interaction that uh, that was lost during the pandemic and also the confidence to explore to inquire to to try out new materials to and i think all of these are things that teachers really should think about you know should should plan their centers so that children have all of these different materials that that they can really explore with and that interact with. They haven't, it's just so sad to think about how much interacting they've lost. I think that a lot of, I mean, actually, I think other things should be done too. I think there should be a tremendous amount of singing. I think there should be a lot, a lot of singing. I think that singing brings people together. I mean, even you think about people working in fields and singing together or going on a rowing on a boat and singing together, or it brings people together and it brings children together. And if, and there's so much learning that goes on through singing, you know, I mean, there's rhythm. Can I just tell you, like, it was a, a joyous moment when I was sort of given the okay to sing in my classroom again, when we first returned during the pandemic, in the middle of it, I was given, you know, sort of strict instructions, you know, and again, I work at an independent school, but I was given strict instructions on no singing, right? you know, yeah. and mind you, that's such a integral part of my classroom. You know, it teaches language. You can, there's math, there's, you know, there, there's literacy, there's so much in singing, Absolutely. right? And so you take all these dynamics, no singing. My students, I had 12 students in the room by myself. I usually have 21. So we had 12 and they all had their own little desk 
to take a toy out and play at their desk with the toys. And, you know, for, for months, you know, it was like this, no singing, they were at their own desk and trying to find ways for these children to still connect and interact. It was, it was so challenging, but you know, there are ways around it. And so, like you said, like, little things, you know, that we sort of take for granted, like as much as we can, re-implementing these things into our classroom, re-implementing singing, re-implementing like the sharing of work that is being done at a center, re, you know, just re-implementing like just sort of all of these socially competent behaviors. Right. Are you interested in deepening your understanding of play, but feeling overwhelmed and lost with where to start? Do you ever feel tongue-tied when advocating for play and need guidance and support? Join us at this year's Free to Play Summit, happening May 14th through the 17th. The summit is completely free, and we have 16 leading experts and six play labs happening over four days. Each day is packed with practical tips that you can bring directly to your practice. Claim your free ticket in today's show notes. And don't forget to mark your calendar for May 14th through the 17th. And and now that the weather is we're coming into spring and the weather is nicer, getting outside a lot. Also, you know, getting outside, that's another thing that, you know, in my book, I don't want to keep going back to my book, but in my book, I I talk about two different kinds of play. All right. Free play where children, there's no agenda, nobody setting an agenda. The children set up their agenda totally, you know, the things that they use totally up to them. And what I call, unfortunately, I would change the name again now, but guided play, because I think it's been misunderstood. I mean, I think that teachers, adults should never guide children's play. Then it's not play anymore. All right. Play is something that they just do on their own. The guiding part is in setting up centers and putting out material. And that's the guided part of it, you know. So, you know, there's the play that they do inside the classroom. And then there's that play, that outdoor play, which is really super, super important. Another thing that I notice, I I think about things that I notice when I go into schools, all right. And one thing I notice is that many teachers send send home like weekly newsletters to the parents, which is lovely, all right. And they'll say what they've been doing in different areas of the classroom. And so what do I see? I see, well, this is what we've been doing in in our reading or our literacy, and this is what we've been doing in our writing, and this is what we're doing in math. And the very last thing, the very last thing is choice time and our inquiry projects. Now that gives a very strong message to both the parents and the administration in the school as to what's important in that classroom. And I always try to encourage teachers and say, Put this first, because this is what's so important for children. In my book, I'd say that play is that children will. I don't say it. It's every. It's you know been well said that children learn through play, but play is the engine that's pushing that learning, that's driving the learning. You know, and so I think that it's really important to make that very clear. The other thing to make clear is is not to just say oh, children learn through play but to be able to articulate how they learn through play and why they learn through play, because we want play to be honored. And if we just say children learn through play, it's not going to be honored. But if we can really say 
what it is that children learn through play. How do they learn through play? Um, and there's a lot that's written about it. It's very easy to become to become educated on that, you know. And and I think that gives much more strength to being sure that children are getting what they need when they go into school. Right. And it helps validate that, that argument that, you know, play is actually the work of children, right? So letting the community, letting parents know all the math that is being learned by working in the block area, right? All the science that has taken place by working at the water table, just sort of all the problem solving and, you know, the higher thinking that is taking place at some of these areas. If we, if you push it out there, it's sort of just, provides a, a, a lens, a perspective on just sort of the importance of it, you know, and it is, we know that play is the work of children. I think that's the key to this coming back from the pandemic is that children, well, first of all, I think we have to respect what they've gone through and, and acknowledge it, you know, I mean, can't push it under the rug. No, you can't. And I feel, you know, I think, Right now, they are sort of, kids haven't had to share with each other, and they haven't had to talk to unfamiliar adults, right? So I think, you know, while all children are are different, and transitioning back in in person sort of was a child to child, it, it, it varied. But I think one of the things I did see, and you hit on this, is, you know, whereas before, I wouldn't be as involved in their choice time decisions, like in how to play. But I have to say, Renee, this year in particular, I noticed that a lot of the children, like they, they weren't sure how to use Legos, how to click them together. You know, like there were, there were things that they sort of have, hadn't done. And so not guiding their play, but there was this, this facilitation that was sort of needed so that they could, so that they could sort of maximize some of these materials, like learning how to stack, learning how to just learning how to build, learning how to, you know, share, learning how to collaborate, you know, some of these skills, which I naturally just sort of at times, you know, in the past, just like, okay. It's there. Like they've been having play dates. They've been doing this. Like they understand the basics of what it means to play with a friend. This year was very different. Like I was getting children who had literally just been home with their grownups, some who maybe had siblings, but also a lot who were, you know, only children and just home, used to playing with an adult. So there definitely was this learning curve I saw. And sort of once we facilitate in the beginning of the year, like, okay, you know, here's the material. This is, and just sort of, you know, guided discovery. Here are, here's a couple of ways, you know, abstract ways you can maybe use it. Can't wait to see what you come up with. But we sort of, then we move back. Yeah. Yeah. There's something actually, as you speak, it makes me, it makes me think about some possibilities. So for example, one thing that I've done in classrooms that I've visited, right, at the beginning of the year is have a group, a whole group block building experience, okay? Because so many of the children have never, first of all, haven't played with blocks yet, you know, haven't had that, all right? Right, especially the larger wooden blocks, the hollow Yes, that's blocks. what I meant. These are the yeah. big blocks, all right? So the way we do it is each child would get a chance to go and pick a block, any block they want, any shape they want, all right? They go like in twos and they go to the blocks and then put it in back of them. Okay. And then I would have one. And so I would put one down in the middle and I'd think about, mm, you know, which way do I want to put it? Do I want it to stand? Do I want it to straighten? I put it there. 
And then I'd say, well, the next person, I said, you put your block down any way you want, but there's one rule. It has to touch my block. It just has to touch it. And so we keep building that way where each child goes up and it has to touch a block. It has to touch. And so, and then we talk about as it's going, what, what it's looking like. And, and, you know, and, and uh, actually I think it was in your school. I did it in w- one of your kindergarten classes where one of the children said, I think that's the Eiffel tower. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but but yeah. so, so we did that with blocks, but I can't see, I, I think it could be done as a group thing with Legos it could be done as a whole group thing with a big piece of paper and everybody has a different crayon and somebody go, you know, they go up and we'd see what happens at the end when everybody makes something and then they go off. So they're becoming familiar with, with manipulating the materials in a supported environment in the whole group. All right. They're also getting the sense that we can look what happens when we work together with somebody and we make something together and then they can go off to their groups, to wherever it is, you know. And then that's when, as the teachers, we observe them and we see what they're picking up, what they're not picking up, what we have to follow through when we meet with them again. You know, that's we learn then about what we need to do as educators. So we're all learning together, the children and the teacher. Together. Yes, I agree. So some of the main points I just want to run it back, you know, just for all the teachers that are out there listening right now. Some of the points that I've taken away from what you said is one, we really have to advocate for our students. They they need choice time. They need these moments of socialization. And yes, there's the academic piece, but research shows that, you know, plays the work of children and, you know, the social piece actually helps all, all areas. The other thing is, you know, there are ways to facilitate, you know, or reintroduce materials that these children may not have been exposed to in a way that is still open-ended, in a way that still facilitates creativity. And the other thing is finding ways to share the work that is being done. So even if, you know, sort of we have, you know, something happening in dramatic play and two kids at the water table, how can we, you know, share what is being, like bridge the gap of sort of what is being done by these teams of children and that there are still ways. So absolutely, absolutely. This has has been great. Can I I have time to read another quote? You absolutely have time. We absolutely. So this was a study that I was, reading. All right. This is a little part of the study. The title of the study is the importance of play in promoting healthy child development and maintaining strong parent child bond focus on children in poverty. And I think that all children coming in now are children who are in a certain kind of poverty, a poverty of socialization. And so we have to consider that all children coming in are just about all children have some are coming with the needs of a certain kind of poverty. So this is just a little part of it. Opportunities for play and social and emotional learning enhance school engagement. Quite simply, school engagement occurs when children succeed academically, have other non-academic opportunities for success, such as creative arts and physical education, And this last part is what really stood out to me. And consider school a place in which they feel safe and enjoy spending time. I I really thought that was an important ending of that. 
It's huge. And and part of why I, I also wanted you to be our, our first podcast guest, Renee, is is the work that you do and is the fact that you advocate so hardly, so so hard in terms of, you know, getting this this getting play back into the lives of our students in these schools, whether you're in independent or whether you're in public schools you know, it, it, it is so vital. And I think especially now it's even more vital, but, you know, just in talking to you, I literally was having flashbacks of when I came back and we like, everything was packed up, you know, they weren't able to use the block area because wood couldn't be, they, or, well, there was the belief that wood couldn't be like, I guess, decontaminated or, right. you know, it was just sort of like, you know, everything we was didn't plastic. Know. We didn't know yeah, they didn't yeah. know. They didn't yeah. know. And right. the baby dolls, they were in a basket in the corner for like three quarters of the year. And my students would ask like, you know, Miss Lynette, can we get the baby dolls today? And mm-hmm. I had to tell them like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, No, you can't. <laughs> and just even that, like saying no, you know, but then it was like, okay, but what can we do? Like, maybe we can make baby dolls. Maybe they can make their own, you know, like there, there are, you know, there have been sort of these inventive things that I think teachers have come up with, but I just in talking to my colleagues and my counterparts, I think we're all seeing this, what the pandemic has done, you know, in terms of the lack of socialization, the lack of sort of interacting. And we're all wondering the long-term impacts and we're all just sort of, you know, questioning what could we do now to make up for that? What could we do now to sort of you know, bring that learning back, you know, bring and just make it natural again. We've spent a year telling children to stay away from each other. And now we're slowly and surely we're reintroducing like, no, you can share. But yeah, it, it, it it's vital. And I have a particular passion for kindergarten, maybe because I was a kindergarten yes. teacher for so many years. And yeah. I feel like that's the grade that's being, that's, that's being trampled on a bit in public school, at least. What is your main concern, like when you do think of, of kindergarten? Well, I my concern is that that it's being it's being thought of in the way that we thought of first grade many years ago, and and that there's this hysterical feeling that we must teach kindergarten children to read at a certain level, to write certain things, to be able to put spaces between their words, to be able to some will absolutely, but. But, but I think that kindergarten is not first grade. It's, you know, first grade is also early childhood, quite truthfully, but kindergarten certainly is early childhood. In New York City, by the way, kindergarten is no longer part of the division of early childhood. Isn't that amazing? Really? Really. Only pre-K. 3K and pre-K, not kindergarten, which means that they, that, you know, if there is a, a teacher or a principal who has no background with early childhood, they can turn it into anything they want. You know, they can turn it into a completely academic year. So I, I, I fear for that. I, you know, I feel like that's, I feel like children are missing out on so much when that happens, you know? And so that, so I feel like a particular, I feel like an advocate for all children, but I feel a very strong advocacy for kindergarten children at this, you know, Absolutely, because kindergarten is is sort of when those first, you know, learning how to read, you know, sound symbol correspondence, like a lot of that starts in kindergarten. What advice or what would you say 
for teachers who are sort of trying to let parents know the importance of sort of what they're doing and how they're allowed. And just the fact that, you know, yes, children do need the academic piece, but for teachers who are trying to really advocate, like, you know, they also need the play too. And for parents who are like, you know, well, you know, I want my child to, you know, they missed a year, so they need to catch up. What advice would you give in, in that scenario to sort of just reassure parents that it will happen? I think that I think that that first of all documentation is is a real key you know that whole idea of making learning visible I think that that's a real key because then if you I just read some article about the difference between documentation and display so I think teachers often will make beautiful displays but they're not really documentation and documentation really shows the growth of a project or what or play whatever it is that that you're documenting and and it has teachers reflections written it has children's reflections it's not just it it it's a bigger thing it's the it's it shows the it shows the progress as opposed to the product of it and i think if t- if parents could see that all right. And if teachers would be very explicit and like that, you know, I'm, I've been watching uh, James and, and Janina building with the Legos and I, I've seen so much happening here. First of all, socially, I've seen them have to, they had to really uh, work out some differences of opinion and without stepping in, they were, they did it on their own, but they were also figuring out what size Legos they needed, which ones didn't work. They were doing lots of mathematical work here, etc. You know, it, it, if it's something to do with that has to do with letters or like having like a, uh, in my kindergarten class, we had this, and I set this up with the children, an ABC center. So it had all sorts of materials. It had different letter, um, magnetic letters. It had tracing paper. It had oh, they uh, carbon paper, which nobody knows about carbon paper anymore, but I used to type with it, you know? And so the kids call that ma- magic paper. And then I brought a overhead projector there. And so they were able, it, it, the letters were like floating around the ceiling there and they were doing, and, and they were taking surveys and, you know, like finding it, I, they were gridded alphabet charts and they were going around the classroom, taking surveys of how many children's names began with an A and how many began with a B et cetera, et cetera. And they were writing the names down in, in the, in, in the different boxes on this. And so they were playing. Nobody told them what to do. All the materials were there. There were ABC books there, et cetera. They were playing there. They were making up what they wanted to do. If they wanted to play school, they played school, whatever it was that they wanted to do there. But there was so much learning taking place. There was so much academic learning taking place. So things like that. And also, I think that there are things that teachers could do to to introduce letters and sounds in ways that are not play, but playful. So for example, doing a names, like what's most important to children? Their names, their names. So starting by doing a name study and let's look at Lynette's name. What do we notice about it? How many times can we clap to it? Lynette, she has a two clap name. I wonder if anybody else has a two clap name and, and how many letters is there anybody, you know, and, and can we find it? Let's see if we can find a little tiny word inside it or what, you know, whatever. And so if, if you focus like a different day on a different name and then start making comparisons between 
So you're doing so much more work than if you're doing a letter of the day or like practicing writing the letters. They're doing just so much work and so much more learning, so much higher level learning. So it's a matter of thinking about that, thinking about how are you going to do it? What are you going to present to children and doing it in a playful way, play and playful. Renee, you're amazing. <laughs> Thank you so Thank you much for, inviting um, me. for joining us today. And if, if, if you all are interested in learning more, Renee has a blog, Investigating Choice Time, Inquiry, Exploration, and Play at in www.investigatingchoicetime.com. So whether you're parents, educators, advocates of young children, Renee's website and blog is a great resource for you to gain ideas and just learn from. So Renee, thank, thank you, so, you much. so much for and joining Thank you for doing today. this. I think it's so important what you're doing. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Powerful, powerful, powerful.